going to kick off a two-week series called Sacred Gender. You see it there on the screen. And uh, a blessing to all the moms in the room. Today we get to talk about biblical manhood. So uh, this is our gift to you. Uh, We get to talk to the men in the room and challenge and encourage them to be the men that God has called them to be. And my ask is that you let the Holy Spirit do the convicting, okay? I I know there will be a lot of amen moments. Keep it to yourself. The Holy Spirit, he will do his job in convicting the men in this room. I know this is convicting for me. So jokes aside, this topic of gender uh, this week and uh, our our second week after our 10-year service, this will be a controversial series. Uh, It's going to be a challenging series and It's not because God's word isn't clear. It's just because there's a ton of confusion and actually chaos going on around us. Of course, it's happening in the culture. I mean, the fact that we have terms like gender identity or gender spectrum uh, is a problem. That these, these lines are blurred and the topic of conversation culturally is, is gender just based upon what we feel? Is it something that I get to choose? Is gender a social construct? Or is there an intelligent and good and loving creator? But we're not here just to talk about the cultural chaos. We're here to talk about confusion that's even happening inside of the church. And I have to say, there's not just a transgender gender issue. There is a traditional gender gender issue. Here's what I mean when I say that. When you hear masculinity, oftentimes it is accompanied by the word toxic. Toxic masculinity. And we see feminism championed all around us. And and like I said, this is not just out there. We see it frequently inside the walls of the church. And so we want to spend the next two weeks really opening our Bibles and saying, what is a man? What is a woman? And we're not just talking about biology. We're not just talking about body parts. We want to say, what is a man biblically? Or what is a woman biblically? And the good news for us is we have this book called the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. It's unchanging. It's not based upon one person's opinion. And it doesn't change with culture. All right, it is the unchanging word of God. It is good, it is a gift to us, and it's meant to lead to our flourishing. So we as a church are Bible people. We're gonna open up our Bibles. You don't wanna know what Jordan Howell has to say about biblical manhood. You want to know what the living God says about biblical manhood. So though this conversation can feel tense, I wanna say the fact that it feels tense is just a byproduct of the fall. It's a byproduct of Genesis 3. This conversation should not feel like an ugly truth to tiptoe around. This should be a beautiful truth to be celebrated. But it feels tense, right? It feels tense to say, man, what what are we going to say about biblical manhood? What are we going to say about biblical womanhood? Gender roles. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to confront us. But before we even dig in today, I want to start on common ground and read Genesis 1.27 to you. On the first page of scripture, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We believe 
that God is the creator. He is a good creator, a loving creator, and he created both men and women perfectly in his image. In fact, Veritas' statement of faith would say this, if you look it up online, men and women are absolutely equal in essence, dignity, and value, but are distinct by divine design. Did you catch that? They're equal in essence, dignity, and value. Why? Because they're created by God. But they are distinct by divine design because they are created different. You see, equal does not mean same. Equal does not mean same. And this is not an accident. God did this on purpose and with purpose. Do you know what the purpose is? It's in Genesis 1.27. To image God. To image God. Within his design, he created men and women differently to put himself on display to a watching world. We're going to look at Ephesians 5 a little bit later today in our text. And you get this passage on marriage. Husbands and wives and how you're supposed to operate And he refers back to Genesis and says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So from the very beginning of our Bibles, when men and women are created, they're meant to put the gospel on display. Now, this last year, we spent an entire year teaching through Genesis and then Revelation. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but the history of mankind starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve, and actually ends with a wedding with Christ and the church in Revelation. So this gender conversation or sexuality, this is not a side issue to Christianity. This is a gospel issue, which means it's important that we get this right. It's important that we get gender and sexuality right. So as we look to define manhood and womanhood, we want to talk to you biblically. And I'm just warning you, there are passages that are hard, (laughs) There are passages that may even make you feel offended, but it's because they don't fit our cultural narrative. They don't fit our cultural narrative, and and that means that sometimes they don't sit right with us, but that does not mean that God's word isn't good. It just means that we view it through a tainted lens when we come to the scriptures. So, manhood. What is a man? Anyways, I mean, I grew up listening to the three B's of culture, This is not my own. Somebody else made it up. The ball field, the bedroom, and the billfold. That's what I was taught it was to be a man, right? Succeed in sports, score a ton of ladies, and have a big bank account. And I listened to that for far too long, and it led me down a path of destruction. Here's here's the Midwest three Bs. I made made these up. Bush light, big trucks, and beards. All right? If that's a man, I am failing. I'm just saying. Clearly, we've gotten this wrong. There has to be more to manhood than these cultural narratives or even just biology. I mean, each year I spend time with young men, 18 to 22-year-olds, and we have to start off every year by having the three Ps conversation, which is I need to talk to young men about pride, purity, and passivity. Because those three sins... Pride, impurity, and passivity are destroying young men's lives. Clearly, we've gotten this wrong. It's a byproduct of the fall. And so we want to answer the question, 
What is a man biblically? And the best way we can do that is actually to go back to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis 2. If you have a physical Bible, open up with me there. And we are going to look at the first man, pre-fall, right? Before sin enters the world, how, had, how has God designed men? And how is it good? So we're going to be in Genesis 2. We're going to spend a little time in Ephesians 5 as well, but those verses will be on the screen. And I want us to just see God's good design for biblical manhood. So Ephesians 2, or Genesis 2, we're going to start in verse 15. Read with me. The word of God says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God, you guys. And I want us to see three creation observations when it comes to biblical manhood. Right? We're going to walk through them one by one. The first, biblical manhood provides. Biblical manhood provides very first verse in our passage, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Before Eve was ever created, God creates man, and he looks out at creation and says, Here's what I want you to do, Adam. I want you to work. His body is designed to work. He's created from the ground to then go serve the ground. And I have to say, work is not a byproduct of the curse, all right? Work existed before the fall, and we will work one day in heaven, but it will be free from the curse. We see the curse in in Genesis 3. Actually, these verses will be up on the screen. Uh, God says to Adam, post-fall, post-sin, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not have eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What once was a delight in work has become a dreaded duty. And this is one way that men today have missed what it means to provide laziness. 
in the face of challenging work, men have backed down, have stopped working, and have become lazy. Look at this, okay? Data posted in January of this year, 7.2 million men have dropped out of the workforce. And in this study, here's what it says. How are non-working men between 25 and 54 spending their time? On average, nearly seven hours each weekday are dedicated to leisure time. Relaxing, playing games, and watching TV, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Data also shows that men who are not working or looking for work are spending less time caring for other household members like children than men who are at work. That is disturbing. A laziness crisis facing men today. And it's, it's interesting as you look at the New Testament, there, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, laziness has been an issue since Genesis 3. But here's, here's some instructions that the Apostle Paul gives to the early church on how, how we should approach men dealing with laziness. Look what he says to the church in Thessalonica. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. He goes on to say, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Wow. Strong words. And then he says this to young pastor Timothy, giving instructions to the church in Ephesus. Here's what he says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. Strong language. In the midst of giving instruction for orphan care, he says, hey, young men, if you are not providing, you are more detestable to the Lord than an unbeliever. That's problematic because men were made to work and to provide to the glory of God. But while laziness is one issue, actually, coming here, I'm from small town Iowa, farm community in northwest Iowa. I'm, I'm less concerned about laziness when it comes to our church congregation and the men here. I'm more concerned about lopsidedness. And here's what I mean. If you only provide financially, if you're only providing based on the work that you do, you likely are not providing the way that the Lord has called you to. I want to look at Ephesians 5. A couple verses here. It says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. These are instructions to men to say, wow, look at your wife and nourish and cherish her. Now these words, nourish means to bring up to maturity and cherish, the word cherish literally means to warm someone up or to revive their health. 
Now, though Genesis looks primarily at this, hey, work the ground, work hard, keep it, provide financially, sure, for your family, this text in Ephesians shows us that provision is about a lot more than finances. Providing is not less than work, but is significantly more. And when I think about providing for my wife, for my kids, I have to believe this is about spiritual provision. This is about emotional provision. It's actually confronting to say, do we care way too much about putting food on the table and not feeding souls, not feeding our wives, not feeding our children spiritually, not encouraging them with the scriptures or sitting down and instructing them in the way of the Lord. We're far too satisfied to just feed stomachs and not feed souls. Or I think about buying gifts. I mean, I'm a dad that loves to buy gifts, but here's what's true. Buying gifts is an easy way out sometimes. It's an easy way out to just spend your money, give them something that they want, and to then use that to excuse absence in the home. Maybe you've heard this before, but presence with a C matters more than presence with a T. Your kids and your wife need you to be present. They need you to show up. They need you to sit They need you to listen, and they need you to share with them meaningful words. Meaningful words. I mean, my father grew up in a household where his dad never once in his entire life said these three words, I love you. I love you. And actually, a byproduct of that is my dad grew up not feeling loved. My dad served time incarcerated because he never heard those words. To sit down and tell your family, I love you, or to look your children in the eye and say, I'm so proud of you. Or this one, much harder, incredibly humbling, to look at your wife or to look at your kids and say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? That is providing for your family. You are showing them that you are in need of a savior and you are doing your job and pointing them to your need for Jesus Christ. And so the call then is to step up and not just provide financially, though that should be on our radar, but to provide emotionally and spiritually as well. Here's the second observation we see. Biblical manhood protects. Biblical manhood protects. Verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Lord gives this command to one man. He gives it to Adam before Eve is formed. God entrusts Adam, the man, with the law, the word of God, for this reason, to protect his future wife and his family, to protect them from harm. Yes, physically, to protect them from death, but much more than that, to protect them spiritually. And we see how this goes, right? By the time you get to Genesis 3, the first three verses, 
Adam is absent. He has completely neglected this presence that we just talked about, and he is not protecting. He's sitting in the background. In the first three verses of Genesis 3, the serpent, the enemy, comes and he speaks to Eve. What's Adam doing? Nothing. He's not speaking to the serpent. He's not scaring him away. He's not dealing with the lies that are being dished out. And in fact, in verse 3 of Genesis 3, we actually see Eve misquote God's word. So apparently Adam was not doing a good job of discipling his wife. (laughs) She didn't know the one command that God had entrusted to him. Some may actually believe that Adam intentionally twisted God's word here to take a lazy approach to leading his wife rather than actually doing the job of protecting, that if he would just tell her that she couldn't even touch the tree, then maybe he could just sit back and she, could, she wouldn't even go near it. Adam has taken a step back from providing and is being a complete coward. Now, hypothetically speaking, if a bat were to ever end up in the Howell household, not that that's ever happened, who do you think should handle it? My wife? Or me? I think you know the answer. All right? I am terrified of bats. It's the one thing I'm really afraid of. I grew up, people are like, you afraid of dying? Nope. You afraid of snakes? Nope. You afraid of bats? Yup. It's like a rat with wings. I do not want to be near those. A few years ago, a bat is in our house. We live in southeast side Cedar Rapids, historic district. Old home. They're, you know, make their way into our attic, whatever. We come home from Nubo City Market. And I think there's a bird in our house, also afraid of birds, fun fact. But there is a bat in our house. And the first thing I want to do is just go hide. But I'm like, oh, wait, me or Ellie? Who's going to handle this? Guess what? It was me. And so I handled it with a cloth and a fly swatter. And guess what? That bat is no more. I can't tell you what happened to him legally, but the bat is no more, okay? He was out of our house. And it just makes sense when you think about stories like that, you know, in the face of danger, who should step up? Is it the woman in the household or is it the man? Men are called to be courageous and to look danger in the face and to say, I will take a stand. That's why when you look back at the Titanic and you see mortality rates between women and children and men, it's applauded that men would step back and say, women and children first, you take the lifeboats. If anybody's going to die, it's us. And that's why in 2012, when another ship sank in the Mediterranean by the name of Costa Concordia, men were shamed because they pushed past terrified women and children to get to the lifeboats first. It was every man for himself, and they didn't care if you were a woman or if you were a child. And they were shamed publicly, rightfully so. Now, this idea of women and children first, is that a cultural thing or is that by design? I mean, it's clearly by design. Ephesians 5 tells husbands this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her sacrifice that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Men in this room, you are called to protect. And yes, that means to sacrifice, to lay yourself down in the face of danger and opposition, to lay yourself down for your wife, for your children, for their flourishing. But did you catch that it's about a lot more than just sacrificing physically? It's about sanctifying spiritually. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, I'm not against anybody in here having a handgun. If you feel compelled to have a handgun and that helps you feel safe, great. But if you have a handgun, but you're not willing to fight for your family's holiness, that is not protection. Okay? Handgun, fine. But you are called to fight for so much more than the physical protection of your family. You are meant to be the spiritual protector of your family, to fight for their holiness. And in order to do that, you need to wage war with the spirit, with the word of God. This is the sword. It's our one offensive weapon in spiritual warfare is the sword of the spirit, the very word of God. And so men in this room, how are you supposed to protect your family if you don't know the word of God, if you don't read the word of God? We have to know and love and obey this book in order to protect our families spiritually. But here's what I know to be true. Some men just struggle to read. Maybe it's illiteracy. Or maybe you are just way too caught up looking at videos on YouTube. I'm telling you, this book is worth reading. And in fact, if you call yourself a Christian, one day you will stand before God and you will be held accountable for how you obeyed washing your wife with the word. And so please hear my challenge to step up and to know God's word and to read God's word and to share God's word with your family. Last but not least, the third trait, biblical manhood leads. Biblical manhood leads. Now this is less clear in the text, but here's what's true. In 1 Timothy 2, when gender roles are described, and it talks about headship and submission, this idea of leadership and helper, 1 Timothy refers back to creation, refers back to Adam and Eve, not a cultural narrative, but to the created order. 1 Timothy 2.13 actually says, here's a part of it, Adam came first and then came Eve. So the fact that Adam was formed first, it shows or implies this level of authority that God has given Adam. Hey, I am giving you headship or authority over Eve We see it most in Genesis 2 in the fact that, number one, God uses the word helper when it comes to women. We're going to talk more about that in a couple weeks as we talk about biblical womanhood. But also that Adam names Eve, that he names the woman, actually shows headship. Now, I have to say, headship does not mean superiority. 
Headship does not mean superiority. We talked about that at the very beginning. Genesis 1, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but different, different in roles, different in design. And I just have to say, as a man, headship is not all it's chalked up to be. <laughs> because with responsibility comes accountability. When you get to Genesis 3, here's what ends up happening. Adam and Eve eat. Verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Like you can hide from God, right? Verse 9, But the Lord God called to who? The man. And said to him, Where are you? Where are you? So though Eve ate first, the original sin, as we know it today, actually did not start with Eve eating but Adam not leading. The original sin was actually rooted in Adam not leading his wife. We already read this verse, but in 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Right? What he's not telling Adam is never listen to your wife. And in fact, hey, bonus points here, man. You will win if you listen to your wife, okay? Listen to her. She was created as a helper to help you, meaning you have weaknesses and blind spots and you need her to speak. He is rebuking the fact that he did not stand on God's word. He did not uphold the law that he was called to lead his wife in. And in fact, Romans 5 is one of the first long books of the Bible that I committed to memory alongside my wife. And it's really interesting when you look at Romans 5 and it talks about sin reigning throughout humanity. Do you know what it says? Sin reigned through one man, through one man's disobedience. Sin reigned. So though headship is something that oftentimes is, you know, glamorized and has you know, blown up into this big fight for power or control or superiority, with responsibility comes accountability. And it's a heavy weight, right? For Ephesians 5, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And you see that headship and submission language, but when you keep reading and you understand what this means to image Christ to your wife, here's what the next verse says. We talked about it earlier. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not as glamorous anymore, is it? To give up your life to care for and love and lead your spouse. So yes, there is this assignment in Ephesians 5 of headship, but there's also accountability. If you read in Ephesians 6, just a few verses over Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wow, that is challenging. When I think about how many women are crushing this at home, 
training their children up in the way of the Lord while men are sitting back passive, following in Adam's footsteps. It says, fathers, you are to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what it looks like to lead. And kids are smart, right? I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old. Three-month-old hasn't figured it out yet. Older two have. They care more about what I do than what I say. Honestly. I can pull them aside. I can give them all the lectures in the world. But here's what will be true. One day, they will not do as I say. They will do as I do. And so to the men in this room, I just want to encourage you. Start modeling for your children what it looks like to lead what it looks like to love your spouse and to lay your life down for her. They are far more likely to do what you do, not do what you say. To lead by example. And whether you like it or not, you are the thermostat of your family. You set the temperature. You set the pace spiritually of the direction that your family is heading. You don't have to like it, but that is how God has designed it. And we're not here to, to argue about ability or desires. My wife is gifted in so many ways that I am not. This is not about ability and desires, but assignment and design. That God has given the assignment and has designed men to lead the family unit. And when this does not happen, statistics show the damage that is done. Okay. This is disgusting. The fatherless crisis in America, 18.4 million children in America, one in every four, who do not have a biological step or adoptive father in the home. One in every four children. And here's some statistics that just prove this point, that we need more godly men in the world. Children from fatherless homes account for 63% of youth suicides, 90% of all homeless and runaway youths, 85% of all children with behavioral disorders, 71% of high school dropouts, and 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers. Children who grow up in fatherless homes are two times more likely to end up in jail four times more likely to live in poverty, and seven times more likely to become pregnant during their teenage years. This one is is less sick, but is more, in some ways, should light a fire under us as men. Data shows that if only a father goes to church the probability of his child remaining in the church is 66%. Meaning two-thirds. The probability of a child remaining in church if only his father goes is two-thirds. However, if only a mother goes to church, the probability of a child leaving the church is two-thirds. Wow. It's almost like God designed it this way. To say, fathers, men, you are called to lead your family. And men leading is not contrary to women thriving. That's just true. Men leading is not contrary to women thriving. The problem is we have perceived it that way. Based on the culture around us and it's because of the fall. 
right? Genesis 3 and verse 16, God actually says this to Eve. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Here's what has happened in the garden. Post-fall, sin has come into the world and has distorted God's good design in two ways. Number one, to make women not happy as helpers. They then want to lead. They want headship. And there's too many cooks in the kitchen. But secondly, here's what's happened. Men have completely done away with this biblical headship and have become authoritative oppressors of women. That men would rule over women. That is disgusting. And that is not biblical. So that's why we have this tainted view is because we look at it through the lens of Genesis 3.16. But here's what's true, you guys. Jesus Christ came not to do away with gender roles, but to actually perfectly embrace and fulfill them. Think about this. Jesus Christ came as a man. He came as a male figure to embrace the patriarchy that was set out from the beginning of the Bible. And he will come again as a king and as a bridegroom to redeem his church. But here's what's also true. During his ministry... He broke stereotypes when it came to how he valued women. He spoke to them publicly. He healed them frequently. In his teachings on divorce, he treated them like people instead of property. When he taught about lust, he made sure that men would not objectify women. He involved women in in so many vital ways in his ministry. In fact, women were the first people to see the resurrected Jesus. But yet, at the same time, Christ called 12 men to be disciples. You understand that he loved women and he cared about women and he involved women and he protected women and he instituted male leadership. And so... Here it is, Veritas Church. If you want biblical manhood, you can say it this way. Biblical manhood embraces God's design to provide, protect, and lead. Biblical manhood embraces God's design to provide, protect, and lead. And this is both an incredible gift and an incredible responsibility. An incredible gift and an incredible responsibility. And to the men in the room who have failed, every single one of you, you've all failed, in one way, shape, or form. And I only know that because I have sat under this text in order to teach it. I have failed. I need to just refresh you in the gospel. What your wife and kids, what the world around you needs is not a man who is perfectly put together in you, but a man who has been perfect and his name is Jesus Christ. And in your shortcomings and your failings and your flaws, you are meant to humble yourself and to point people around you to the person and work of Jesus. You need him, and so do they. And so I'm here to tell you, God's grace is sufficient for you. He went to the cross 2,000 years ago knowing that you would fail, that you would become passive, or maybe that you would go the other way and you would become a power trip. He knew that you would struggle with purity. He knew that you would not protect. He knew that you would become absent. And yet still, he went to the cross for you. 
And now as we look at passages like Philippians 2, he says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The grace of Jesus not only forgives you, but empowers you to change and now to lead and provide and protect in the way that God has designed you. So there is grace to forgive you and grace to empower you. But I want to give two really clear application points. And the first is to know, love, and share the truth. To know, love, and share the truth. Men in this room, please. Be men that are in your Bibles and of your Bibles. To know this book, to cherish this book, to wake up each day and to put your face in its pages and to be quick to say, babe, you would not believe what I learned this morning. Or to your kids, hey, you wouldn't believe what I, what I read this morning. To share the word of God with them. But secondly, And this is, in some ways, too broad, but I think is pointed enough. Men, you can figure it out. Step up. The call for men to step up. And yes, this is for husbands and dads in the room. I know as we look at Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, it's primarily looking at marriages. And yes, it is for you, husbands and dads. But also, I want to speak to all the single men in the room. This is for you, too. To step up. Maybe you want to one day be a husband or a dad. And I have to say, your trajectory right now is going to help determine whether or not you become this biblical man that God is calling you to be. But also, remember this statistic, 18.4 million children in America who don't have a dad. Wow, what an opportunity for men in the church to step up, to step up in our church and to step up in our community and to be a model to be an example, even if you are not a biological father to these children, to say, I want to fight for the family unit, and I want to care for children. I want to give them an example of what it means to be a man who follows Jesus. And if we would do this, men in this church, if we would do this, you have no idea what kind of impact you would have. By design that God would create men to lead and to have this, this impact on the family unit that we would see men who glorify God turn into families who glorify God. And then we would take these families who glorify God and get them involved in a church that glorifies God. And then if we would have a church full of men and families glorifying God, that we would actually get to see communities shaped and transformed by the gospel. By a really simple but yet challenging task of stepping up to lead, to protect and to provide. But that's what we want. And that's what we want here at Veritas. All the guys, I know you want it deep down within you, and all the women in here, I know you want men in this church to do that too. But we can't muster up the strength, okay? We can't just try harder, put a little elbow grease on it, and do more next week. We need the grace of God to actually shape us change us, to change our affections and to empower us to do that this week. And so we're going to pray right now that God would do that this week for the men in this room. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your good design. Thank you that you have created men and women equal in value, dignity, and worth. But thank you that you have made them different and distinct to put your image on display. Christ, that you would embody The husband, you are our perfect bridegroom who laid down your life for us, the church, that we could know you 
and love you and obey you forever, that we can walk in flourishing because of the way that you have led us. And God, I pray in light of the gospel, in light of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that the men in this room would be shaped, transformed, affections stirred to provide for their families, to protect families, to lead families, and for the single men in this room to step up in the church and in the community to show others what it looks like to be a man after God's heart. And Lord willing, God, that we would get to see more men raised up, more families transformed, and the communities around us shaped by men who love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.